to The Lifted Podcast. I'm your host, Helen Denham, and this is a place for us to talk about what we're doing every day to raise our vibration and understand ourselves more deeply as energetic beings and co-creators. All right, my friends, welcome to another episode. If you're new here, episodes drop every Wednesday morning. And I'm Helen. I'm an empowerment coach, meditation teacher, singer-songwriter, lots of things. So happy that you're here. And if you have been following along with the show for a while, I just can't tell you how grateful I am. It's really an honor to show up and hold this space with you on a weekly basis and bring you these awesome people, these awesome human beings. So today is no different. We've got Coot on the show and it's going to be an awesome episode for you. So meanwhile, I hope we're all doing okay here. We are just moving through an eclipse portal and Mercury is about to go retrograde. So just lots of interesting things that come up around this time. When I think of, you know, solar eclipses, especially, you know, we notice that we lose the sun for a moment, which really signals to me shadow work coming up to light. So what are those parts of us that we don't really want to look at that are a little uncomfortable, a little scary? If you got my most recent newsletter, you saw this shadow work exercise, which is I encourage you guys to get out your journal at some point and actually draw out, like sketch out that version of you that feels the most unworthy, the ugliest, like the, the, you know, the worst things that you tell yourself in your mind. And I know this might seem like triggering and weird to do, but when you actually draw this out, you access like a really profound level of compassion for yourself. And I believe that you'll eventually come to a point of realizing like, wow, like the only way to really move through this is with kindness and with open eyes and open heart and, you know, move through more gently with yourself. So this was an exercise that was recommended through To Be Magnetic, and it was really powerful for me. So I wanted to pass that along to you as well. And then, you know, after you do your drawing and kind of work through that, just write down like, what you feel proud of yourself for, what's going really well for you, you know, what are your hopes and your wishes and your dreams for yourself, speak to yourself and write to yourself like you would be speaking to a child, just notice what shifts. So that was a really powerful exercise for me recently. Pretty much that's what's going on over here, just moving through all of this intense energy. And if you're feeling curious and called to take your healing and your exploration a step further, I do have a couple more slots open in my mentorship series, which is a one-on-one private series with me for seven weeks. And I also have a confidence course that's out for you guys, eight module self-mastery course that has been really transformational for my clients. So check out HelenDenham.com to learn more. Let's get into today's episode. So we've got Coop Blackson here. He is awesome. He is the author of the national best-selling book, You Are the One. And he's widely considered the next generation leader in the field of personal development by everyone ranging from Larry King, Jack Canfield, Marianne Williamson, and so many more people. And his mission is really simple, to awaken and inspire people across the planet to access inner freedom, live authentically, and fulfill their true life's purpose. So by the age of eight, Coot was actually speaking to his father's congregations in more than 300 churches, and at the age of 14, he was ordained into his father's ministry, preparing to carry on his father's spiritual legacy. 
but his heart drew him to another path, which was coming to America. And in this episode, he tells us his story of claiming his independence, essentially, and stepping into his own power. So we talk about that amazing shift and transition into coming over here to America. And we also cover, you know, the power of meditation, listening to your inner guidance and what makes a strong leader. And toward the end, we also talk about Coot's tips for writing and just building such an amazing, powerful personal brand as well. So lots of amazing stuff packed into this episode. I know you guys are going to love it. If you feel like a friend might benefit from what you're hearing, please do go ahead and send it along. And in the meantime, I'm on Instagram at Helen Denham underscore, and you can find Coot at Coot Blackson on Instagram as well. So hit us up, let us know what you're learning. I love you so much. And I'll talk to you on the flip side. Well, Coot, thank you so much for being here. And the first question I always love to ask guests is, how do you like to start your day off? Do you have any rising routines or rituals that you go to? How do I like to start my day? I like as much as possible to take about three to five minutes to in between just the first moment of waking and getting out of bed to, to lie in bed allow myself to come out of deep sleep very slowly. And in that sort of moment in between worlds to speak to my subconscious and just sort of, you know, where, where the filter between the conscious mind and the unconscious mind is very uh, loosened to communicate to my subconscious just beautiful things about myself, about life, about, you know, you could say, I don't want to say affirmations, but, but sort of invocations for my day whilst I'm in a deeply relaxed state, you know? And so that's one thing I love to do. Non-negotiable for me is I exercise every day, something every day, pretty much. It's, uh, I make that a choice to not be a choice. And that sets up my physical, the physical part of my day. And so an hour of sweating, running this morning, I went running. Uh, these days it's kind of body weight hit training so that grounds me in that sense, wakes me up. And then, you know, typically I meditate in the morning. If I don't have time, I do that later, but I'll do meditation and just sit and connect and be. So that's, the, and then I always have my green powder. I have a green, I have a green powder uh, uh, that I take with protein and mix the two together, ready to go. Nailed it. Beautiful. I really love that you bring up that liminal space between the astral world and your waking self in a way, because I feel like that's such an easy thing to bypass for most people to just jump right into the beginning of your day. But do you pay attention to your dreams at all in that space as yeah, well? Yeah. You know, it's funny because I tend not, at least consciously, I tend not to dream a lot or remember my dreams because I'm a very deep sleeper. And so I mean, maybe stuff is going on, but for the most part, it's just blank. <laughs> it's just, it's just sleep. And I do, you know, when I have dreams or when I remember them, I try to pay attention. Um, I've kind of felt that when we dream many times, dreaming is a way of working out shit that we don't resolve or work out in the conscious waking state. And so whatever is unprocessed, it could be a sensation, could be a feeling, could be an emotion, could be something unsaid, an impulse that wasn't like processed while we were consciously awake. We'll tend to get processed maybe unconsciously while we're sleeping. So as much as possible, humanly possible, I try my best to sort of say what I need to say and process what I need to process in the conscious waking state. And so I sleep really deep. Um, I do sometimes, not every day, 
put a journal near my bed and kind of invite the remembrance of dreams if needed. Uh, but yeah, yeah, I, I think dreams, I'm not one of those people that necessarily look to like a, a formula for what dreams mean. I think dreams represent often aspects of our subconscious, you know, and communicate to us. And so if I have a dream, I'll kind of sit with myself. What does that mean for me? And what is my subconscious seeking to, to communicate to me? So, yeah. Totally. And then what does your meditation practice usually look like? Are you sitting in silence? Are you visualizing? Yeah. What's that look yeah. like? No, I think, I think to me, visualization, I'm going to sound, uh, let, me, let me say, I think visualization isn't meditation. Visualization is, medit- visualization, is visualization. Mm-hmm. Uh, and mindfulness is mindfulness. But I, I would say for me, when I meditate, uh, I sit, in silence and I don't want to say do nothing, but really just be more than anything. And, and so it's just the process of allowing the attention to go to deeper dimensions of my consciousness. And I think there is a natural, left to its own devices, there is a natural gravitation deeper down towards the deeper dimension of our being that we all are you know, um, our true nature. And uh, so for me, the meditation is just effortless. It's simple. Um, It is a natural process of just dropping deeper and deeper down. Um, I would say process of doing nothing uh, and and process of least effort, just allowing, you know. And then I think when we, um, in order for going beyond the persona, the identity, this, this experience, uh, I think, in order for an experiencer to exist, there has to be objects. And I think one of the scariest things, as to, like, I was thinking the other day, I was telling someone the other day, like, they were asking, why is it so difficult to meditate? Well, it's not that difficult to meditate. You sit and do nothing. How difficult is that? But for the ego or the perceived sense of what we think ourselves to be, it can be terrifying to sit and do nothing because one of the ego's jobs is to reinforce its existence and it wants to believe that it really exists. And so there's always, uh, which is why we busy ourselves and run around and busy, busy, busy doing a bunch of stuff that we don't even know what we're doing. And we're going here, going here, creating drama for ourselves so that we can feel like I'm alive, I'm, I'm here. And I think even in meditation, it can be a little sneaky that the ego can insert itself and want to constantly be doing some shit doing something, doing something, I'm doing this, nothing wrong with mantra, I'm doing this mantra, I'm doing this thing. But that, and I think all of these tools have their place and it can be really scary for the ego or the egoic identification to just sit and do nothing. Because when we do nothing, there's this fear of, oh shit, like, where am I existing? It can feel like a death to just sit and do nothing. So we constantly want to like, do a special breathing technique, do a special something, you know, blow in my nose, stick a thing up here, do that, see light. And so I think there's something profound when we really meditate in a way where we transcend our uh, identity, where we go beyond our identity, where we drop deeper than the 
egoic five sense, five, three D form that we're constantly being reinforced by society and media and culture and parents and advertising to believe ourselves to be. And, and we go beyond that, you know, even our patterns and our addictions and our fears and all that stuff that we sometimes buy into that, oh, that's who I am and that's what I am and that's what I am and I'm this and I'm that. And so I think when we can, through the process of meditation in a way, go beyond that it provides the ability i found to loosen the the grip the egoic grip on oneself for a moment to allow for more space you know things like plant medicine things like dance things like even alcohol for a very small moment allows a loosening you know in a very simplistic way and so i think in meditation when we can really go beyond then it allows for the loosening of the grip of one's identification uh, over time and cultured uh, over time as we do the consistent practice. Um, it can allow that spaciousness to expand more and more and more and some freedom from our own egoic egoicity and our patterns and our you know uh, identity-based ways of thinking and so. In order for experience to exist, there has to be an object, 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 stuff, object, object. And so um, when we go beyond object, uh, when we go beyond object, then I think something really profound happens. You know, mm. we go beyond experience. And so, uh, so for me, the process of meditation is, is as much as possible to be effortless and it's going to sound weird to, to not reinforce the experience, to not reinforce my ego identity, cuteness, selfness. And, and, and so the process of meditating is also as important as the meditation itself. And, and so, uh, yeah, it's very simple. Just sit, close my eyes, 20, 30 minutes, and just thoughts flow through, let the stuff move through, let, and just kind of don't get too involved in whatever is happening on the surface level of my awareness. And mm -hmm. just there's a dropping down that happens. You know, I think when we transcend object and we transcend experience and we transcend the process of experiencing, we begin to, to just naturally rest in in the beingness that is always the case, whether we are conscious of it or not, it's just always the case, you know? Totally. I love the way that you're describing that. There's so many levels that we could go and so many paths we could take from there. But <laughs> I think just like stripping away identity, you become like an explorer of the unknown. And ironically, you start to know yourself more deeply as you shed your well, identification yeah, layers. Yeah, yeah. It's amazing. And I, and I totally would agree with you because I lead visualization, like quote unquote yes. meditations, but we always have five minutes where we just let the mind run and release because it is very active to visualize in the yes. stillness meditating yes. it's such a good point that that's really where you're dropping in there have you yeah. always like been familiar with this kind of work and meditation like what was your upbringing like this is what i'm curious about <laughs> <laughs> um i actually started meditating quite young in a sense like i was always um I was very empathetic as a kid, so I always felt people deeply and I felt people suffering. And, and there was always a part of me 
I wanted to alleviate people's suffering in some way. You know, I was born in Ghana, West Africa. My father's from Ghana. My mother's Japanese. My father's Christian. My mother's Buddhist. Uh, it was a very interesting experience as well. And I grew up in London. So I grew up in all these different cultures. And so I felt people suffering. I didn't really know how to alleviate that, but I felt this deep desire to, to do that in some way. And so for me, uh, one of my first memories was literally, I remember being age seven, thereabouts, um, in Ghana, West Africa. And I watched this crippled woman crawling on the floor and she picks up the sand that this man walks on and wipes it on her face and stands up. And he didn't know he was just walking. And so kind of stuff you read about and, 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 and wonder if it's real. And so here I am watching this happening. And week after week, I grew up seeing blind people see and deaf people hear and people stand up out of wheelchairs. And so in this sort of miracle based environment that people think, oh, come on, that's just, that's bullshit. That's not, I saw it. There were no cameras around, no social media, just every day. It was, it was kind of normal to me and I didn't think that much of it. And so the man who essentially picked up was my father and my father built about 300 churches in Ghana, West Africa built a huge church in London, about 5,000 people at its height. And yeah, he was a very mystical person, not simply like religious so much, but very mystical, came from a stamp because he went to India, I found that later in the 60s and had these kind of enlightenment experiences in caves with monks. And I'm like, you did? I had no idea. And so his belief was really, and I think this really impacted me and was a real blessing because he was always like, look, heaven is a state of consciousness. Hell is a state of consciousness. Jesus was like you and I and, and realized his Christ consciousness. And we all have Christ consciousness, the Christ consciousness of being inside of us. And so uh, I grew up with this sense of like, wow, you know, this possibility. And, 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 and so from a very young age, I would sneak into my father's bookshelf in his office and there were literally thousands of books probably in his bookshelf everything from you know Maharishi Mahesh Yogi, Krishnamurti, Ramana Maharishi, Nisargadatta Maharaj, um, it, the, the, uh, the western mystics of like Blavatsky, Theosophical Society, you know uh, Uspensky, Gurdjieff um, and then the sort of more pop side Western mystics of people like Joe Goldsmith, Science of Mind, Unity, to, to sort of like Wayne Dyer, Louise Hay, Deepak Chopra, you know, Marianne Williamson. And so I grew up just as a kid, literally being very curious. And AJ picked up my first self-help book, talking about visualization from like one of the OGs of visualization. <laughs> We're talking um, Shakti Gawain, who was like the original... I mean, I'm sure there were books before that, but in the more, this was probably in the 80s she wrote the book. So she wrote a book called Creative Visualization, which was like the classic on visualization. And so as an eight, nine year old kid, I'm reading about visualization. My mind is blown, you know, because kids' imaginations are very creative. And so I'm like, I can think things and visualize things and kind of thoughts kind of become reality. And so that was my first epiphany and awakening in, in, in sort of metaphysics and self-help. And then I became obsessed reading, reading. I'd go to school, I'd come home from school, do my homework, go for a little run, and then 6 p.m. to like midnight, read self-help books. And I started practicing. You know, I started reading um, uh, autobiographies of a yogi and started 
kind of practicing some of the sort of spiritual techniques that they talked about and experimenting and kind of had some cool experiences. So that, that was a bit of my, my upbringing. But at age eight, I started speaking in my father's churches, which was an interesting Amazing. experience. An interesting experience. I wasn't that interested in going to church, but I was thrown up on stage. And that began a very unexpected opening for me because when I got up on stage, just stuff started coming out of my mouth that I was really not expecting. And that would happen every month, every six weeks. And then when I was 14, I was ordained as a minister. And I was given a mandate to take over my father's organization, considered the successor. And my father had you know, hundreds of thousands of followers in Africa. So it was kind of a big deal. A lot of pressure on a kid who was 14. And I knew that I wanted to help people, but I knew that the church or organized structure wasn't my path. So when it was announced, my heart sinks because I'm, I'm thinking to myself, shit, this is, this is not my path. This is not my destiny. And <clears throat> I was too afraid to tell the truth, to speak to my father and tell him this is not my path, you know? So it took about four years of really internal questioning and turmoil and, and soul searching to really have the courage to face my father and speak my truth and, and, and break away. That's, that's the short version. I could keep going. But. Oh, I mean, it's so young too. It's like you were born into this world of just responsibility in a way. And also like when you were that young on stage, did you feel like you were channeling something? Like what was coming through you that gave you the confidence to even speak and get up there? Yeah, I, I wish I could say it was confidence and take credit for it. But, but honestly, <clears throat> I used to play soccer in the lobby of the church and break things. So it didn't look good for my dad. So they literally put me on the front row with two, uh, two, two kind of like escort bodyguard type people <laughs> that would sit next to me. And I fall asleep, to be honest. I was asleep the whole church service because my dad's church services were literally five hours long, okay? And in an African church is like dancing and singing and he would speak for like two hours. Um, and, and like a whole rock concert. And I was bored. And one Sunday, they nudged me and said, your father's calling you on stage. And I'm eight years old, I'm thinking, I'm half asleep. I run on stage. And it, and it really, I don't remember that much, to be honest, what actually happened. I just stood there and kind of opened my mouth and stuff started coming out. And I can't really take much credit for it other than just <laughs> stuff came out and, and people were moved. And, and, and that began a journey. And so I've always kind of felt like that even when I teach and do seminars and 12 days, five days, three days, uh, I kind of moved, something happens where, where, where the sort of, the brain dissolves, you know, and, 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 and. Like flow state, would you call it a flow Something state? comes through, like, 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 like when I do these really intensive seminars, three days, immersive, 12-day sessions where I'm really unconditioning people from their identity and I'm creating processes and facilitating. Um, I, I never knew before because I've been, you know, I've been doing this sort of deep group type work for about 10, 10 years, 12 years. Um, but literally now I understand. I'm like, oh shit, the DMT is flowing in my brain. Like, like I can literally feel like, 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 everything lighting up and, 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 and it's like a beyond the flow state, you mm. know, it, it's beyond, it, it's like, 
it's like I dissolve mm-hmm. and, 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 and something, life, life, the real, whatever's real, just starts coming through. And yeah, I'm there, it's there, but, but it, it's, it's not an altered state and it's not a flow. It just, it's just it's an, exp- it's an expressive expansion. You know, mm-hmm. that starts that starts happening where I feel the pineal gland activated and I'm tripping. You know, it's, it's, how, it's how it feels. It's how it feels. You know? Yeah, and, totally. And I, I love it. For me, that's that's the zone I love to be in the most and, and live and more and more live in that zone and then working as and, and, and then live in that zone and working that zone. So yeah. Yeah. So so what happened next? So you expressed to your father at some point that you don't want to be really in the church anymore, right? But did you know what you wanted to do with your yeah, life next? Yeah, and yeah, and yeah. what what did that look like? You see, I, I read a book by Krishnamurti that really screwed me up. <laughs> I don't know if you know Krishnamurti, but but a great mystical Indian enlightened teacher, very intellectual. When I read his book, he was groomed from a very young age by Theosophical Society to be like this world teacher, brilliant mind. And then he left everything, talked about how free mind is not a conditioned mind, a Jewish mind, a Buddhist mind, and left everything. So when I'm reading this, I'm like having this epiphany at 14, like, I have to leave. And I felt this calling to come to America. My soul was calling me to come to the US, primarily, I think, because all of the authors and teachers I'd read about, everyone from Tony Robbins, Deepak Chopra, Louis A. Marinus, Jack Canfield, the pop psychology type authors, lived in freaking Southern California. You know, they lived in LA. I'm like, it's India or Los Angeles, you know, San Diego. This is where it, this is where it's happening. And so my soul nudged me to LA. My soul nudged me to the US and I felt it so strongly. It was undeniable. I knew that I was afraid to own it, but I knew it. And I think sometimes what your soul guides you to do won't always make sense to your conscious mind. And what your soul guides you to do may not always be convenient. But I found that when you honor your soul and you don't betray your soul and you're true to your soul, no matter what, you will always end up in the right place. Always end up in the right place at the right time with the right people, even if the path you take might be the unexpected path. And so it took me four years to muster the courage. When I turned 18, I had to make a decision, basically. And the decision was stay in college, go to college, or go to America. And and I looked into my future. I saw the expected path that my father set out for me. And I realized I'm never going to be happy living someone else's life. You cannot be truly happy being someone that you're not. And I looked into my future and I projected into my future, age 20, age 30, age 40, age 50, age 60. And I'm like, shit, if I follow this path, I'm going to have to live a lie for the rest of my life in order to like get love, validation and approval. And if I follow this path, it's kind of a soul suicide. And the pain of that really kind of hit me in that realization of, wow, I'm going to follow a path that is not my destiny. And, and so, and even if I'm successful following this path, what kind of success is that if I don't have myself? And, and so when I really sat with that and meditated with that and, and just was with it, it, it felt so, the pain of not listening to my soul felt stronger and I realized what I had to do, which was in and of itself heartbreaking because even though I wasn't close to my father, he was this iconic guy who I loved and wanted his validation as a kid. And, and I realized what I was going to have to do, which was break his heart, you know? And so when I was 18, I mustered up the courage to choose myself and choose my life. And let me tell you, 
I was terrified. People, people talk about be fearless. I was full of fear. I was terrified, but I knew the path that was calling me and I couldn't deny that. And I looked him in the eyes one day and said, I'm not taking over, trembling. And he said, are you sure? The cracked voice, I said, yes. And uh, we didn't speak for two years. Mm. And that was very, as, a, as an 18, 17, 18 year old kid, that was really, it was difficult. It was hard. I mean, my dad's love and validation is all I wanted. And that was really heartbreaking. But I knew I was on the right path. And in that moment, I'll never forget feeling so like suspended in midair and alone. Mm-hmm. Like felt so alone. Like I'm given this vision. And I think sometimes as human beings, we feel like I'm given this vision, but like how the hell is it going to happen? And I felt like how the hell is this vision going to happen of me going to America? I have no money, no family support, don't know anyone in the U.S., no college degree, like great prospect for coming to the U.S. And I meditated and I sat. And this is one thing I always do is I, when I'm not sure, I just, I don't, I try not to act. And many times we act out of fear only to create more drama in life. And I just sat down. I said, okay, universe, you're giving me this vision. You're going to have to, you're going to have to reveal yourself <clears throat> and resolve this situation because I'm out of answers. I'm, I'm just following my guidance here, literally on a wing. And I was in the library, true story. Someone walks into the library of my school, my, 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 my college. 17 and, and hands me a magazine called The Economist and said, hey, you should check out this, this article. And I like to follow the clues of life because I think life gives us clues. Sometimes we're just not paying attention. So I opened the back of this magazine. It says the American government's given away 55,000 green cards in the green card lottery. Mm-hmm. I, feel, I feel chills in my uh-huh. body. Like I felt those chills. I'm like, shit, I'm going to win this thing. I mean, it's crazy. I'm I like, I'm going to win. And so I applied to the law firm. I was told that unless you hear by, this was April, unless you hear by September the 18th, move on with your life. You're not going to get a notification. Every day I'm, I'm visualizing, I'm practicing my visualization. I cut out a green card, I colored it green, not knowing that they're not green. Visualize the president of the United States shaking my hand. I mean, really visualize it. Every day going to the mailbox. No letter, no letter. Three months, no letter. September, I'm getting depressed. I'm losing hope. Uh, I'm about to give up. I'm getting mad at God. September the 18th, I'm thinking, <laughs> this is the day. Nothing. Now I'm really pissed at the universe. <laughs> and I'm having a FU moment at the universe. And I decided I was going to pack my suitcases and go to America regardless. Like, visa, no visa, I'm going. And that night, pack my suitcases. We get a phone call. It's past midnight. My mother picks up the phone. She says, it's cool, it's for you. It was an American voice on the other line. It was the law firm I applied to, says, Mr. Blackson, you, we just got the notification today that you want a green card. Oh, my and God. I'm thinking, oh, my God, I'm jumping, jumping around, like going bonkers, you know, in my apartment, like in, in, the, in the apartment, hugging my mother. And I heard this voice that said, uh, why are you so surprised? <laughs> did, did you knew? So don't lose faith. Trust like, like why are you, you're acting like you're so surprised. And that was a, a, a lesson I'll never forget. Um, 
And then I came to the US, two suitcases, you know, you know, one in the country, $800 in my pocket, landed in LA, Venice Beach, California, when it wasn't hip, it was crazy. Okay. Yeah. And it was bonkers, cried my eyes out for like a month, literally, and got a two, maybe 300 square foot little tiny apartment and uh, started my life. But I felt, you know, it was interesting. I had nothing. I was literally stealing food from supermarkets when I came, literally. And my first bed was a, um, I, I dragged a, a mattress out of the trash, literally to sleep on your, yep. your young, you just don't have any sense thinking <laughs> there's germs in this thing, right? Totally. Yeah. And, 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 but I was happy because maybe I was ignorant, but I was also, I felt like I was following my truth, you know? And I felt like if I was going to fail, it's one thing to fail when you're following someone else's plan. But when you follow, at least for me, knowing I was following my truth, if I was going to fail, I would rather follow, be following my truth, knowing I really gave it everything so that I wouldn't live with any regrets. And so I was following my path and it was the toughest, let me tell you, the toughest months, year or two of my life come to the US. It was brutal, brutal, wow. but it was, a real education and I mean I could go on but it was it was a trial a test of faith every day I wanted to go back every day I'm like did I make the wrong decision every day I was there you know couldn't eat because I had no money question but something kept pushing me you know kept kept pushing me to say keep moving and then things opened up so was there a breakthrough moment at some point after you'd been here for a little while that like some, what started to click and change where you felt like the ball started to roll for you? I don't know if it was rolling, but maybe I saw a ball. Yeah, yes. <laughs> and, and, and that was enough hope for me. You know, I came to the U.S. because I wanted to find these authors and these people, right? And, and, and the, the, the Deepak Chopras of the world, you know, Brian Tracy, Jim Rohn, Zig Ziglar, Stephen Covey. I wanted to find these folks. And so this is a weirdest story. I don't think even if I share this on a podcast. Um, Go for I, it. I, I went to a business conference. I'm 18. I went to business, like how to make money. Like I'm going to be rich in America, the American dream. It was just all a scam, basically. And I, and I go to the business conference and I leave. Then I get a phone call from the landmine because I had a landmine. Says, and this woman says, basically, she wanted to enroll me into a multi-level network marketing opportunity. She says, I got your business card. We met. I got your business card in this conference. I'm like, I don't have any business cards. What do you mean business card? And she was telling me about her money-making opportunity, which was Prime America, which was at the time an insurance yeah, multi-level marketing company. I'm like, mm, I'm not really interested in insurance. I've come to America to go into self-help and inspire people. And I've I was sharing her my vision. And she says, oh, I have a friend who is kind of involved with something like that. So an hour later, I get a phone call from her friend who's involved with this multi-level marketing company. It was called TPN at the time, a multi-level marketing company, the People's Network, that this was like way before the internet and what have you, a satellite-based TV network dedicated to personal growth. And she tells me that, Everyone who's in the programming on this satellite network, and there was network marketing, so money-making opportunity, everyone that was uh, part of the faculty, Les Brown, Jim Rohn, Stephen Covey, Zig Ziglar, Jack Canfield, Mark Vitan, all of these sort of icons for me as a little boy, they were part of it. And so I'm like, 
I want to join. So I remember going to this opportunity meeting where they give you the whole pitch. And I'm like, I want to sign up. And I tell the, the, the sponsor, the woman who invited me, I want to sign up, but I have no money. You know, it's $500 to sign up for this thing, to join the network marketing company, but I have no money, but I really want to sign up. Maybe this was a break, but she looks me in the eyes. Her name was Pamela. Changed my life. She looks me in the eyes. She said, are you sure? I said, yes. She goes, I believe in you. I don't know, but there's something about you. And I really believe in you. And I'm going to, I'm going to loan you this money. And even though we haven't met, I'm going to trust that you're going to really like work it. And I'm going to loan you this money. You can pay me back. And so I signed up. And Amazing. then, you know, the, the, the thing with multi-level is you have to know people. I didn't know any, I didn't know anyone. And so, <laughs> so what I did was literally, you're familiar with LA, yes? So what I did was I, I, I was living in Koreatown when it wasn't hip. I would, I had one suit, I put, every day, I'm like, I can't fail this person who believed it. I cannot fail her. I did two things. Every day I would go to Wilshire Boulevard, Wilshire, between Wilshire and Fairfax, there's these office buildings. I just walk into the office buildings. I mean, again, ignorance is bliss. Walk into the office buildings, ride the elevators, and try to harass and roll people into this multi-level marketing <laughs> company. <laughs> and, and I would just ride the elevators until I wear people down until people said yes. And then I started calling. And so that's how people started signing up for this multi-level because they were just, you know, energized by this young kid who was excited about personal development. And one thing led to the next thing. And, the, and another break came when I went to the convention in Dallas of this multi-level. And I started signing up a whole bunch of people in, in my organization. So they threw me on stage. Mm -hmm. Interesting. They literally <laughs> threw me on stage. And I would, I would always get pissed off when my dad would throw me on stage without any preparation. But I'm like, fuck, because it was so nerve-wracking, you know, like, why didn't he throw me on stage? But once I was on stage, things would flow. And the moment he threw me on stage, I went on stage in front of 20,000 people, oh 18, 19-year-old kid, in a freaking arena, okay? Front row, Jim Rohn, Zig Ziglar, Stephen Covey, you know, Brian Tracy, Dennis Waitley, all of the motivational freaking icons upon icons. I'm like, Mark Victor Hansen, all there. I'm like, oh my God. Can we want you to share your story. And I flashed back to my dad and I realized that perhaps he'd been preparing me, you know, for my destiny un unbeknownst to him. And every part of that was preparing me. And so when he threw me on stage again, same thing happened. Boom, I spoke. Entire, I don't remember what I said. The entire audience goes into tears. And then 20,000 people coming up to this kid afterwards, like that opened up so many doors. One of the things that happened was I started promoting seminars. So, so as a result of that, I met Jim Rohn. Jim Rohn gave me some advice. And he, he, he told his promoters, you guys need to work with this kid. And so I started promoting seminars and learning kind of how to speak to an American audience, promoting seminars. And that, that began a whole nother adventure, which led me, you know, learning how to promote seminars back then, 18 years ago, 20 years ago, sort of gave me the, the education on how to promote my own seminars and just you know, one thing led to the next. Wow. This is just an amazing story you have of like, first of all, faith and patience and persistence and really just getting your boots on the ground. And then that just lining up for you from all these people that you looked up to yeah. since like day one to be in front of them. Wow. Amazing. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I, I think it just shows that 
you know, I think so often we want to figure everything out mm-hmm. and we want to have everything lined up and we want to plan and we want to strategize. Nothing wrong with that. But I think we try to figure out life from our current perspective and we try to project into the future. But the truth is, I think life is bigger than our plans. Life is often bigger than our intentions. And, and so life often reveals itself in the process of living itself. And many times we're not living, we're on the sideline trying to figure it out. All right, popping in for a moment to chat with you about my confidence course. This is an eight module online self-mastery course and we go through everything from breaking and creating new habits to goal setting to energy clearing rituals, EFT, guided visualization meditations, and so much more. So if you're feeling like you are just ready to up level in some way in your life or you have a project that you've had in mind but are just like a little nervous or scared to take the next step or you just want to get to know yourself more deeply, this might just be the perfect thing for you right now. So you can go to hellandenim.com slash course and check it out. See if it resonates. And I'll leave the link in the description below as well. All right, back to the episode. So when you are speaking, when you're on stage and when you're, you know, in this portal and, you know, helping people and guiding people, what do you find that your community is coming to you with? What are most people struggling with that they're needing guidance around? I think it depends, you know, um, you know, people are always questioning what their purpose is. People are always questioning the sense of who am I? What's my purpose? Am I enough? Am I good enough? You know, self-sabotage, you know, these kind of patterns. And so uh, th- there's different ways that I speak. Like when I do the, the sort of one, two hour sort of inspirational speeches, it is, it is more energetic and vibrational and yes, sharing insights, sharing some strategies, but also, you know, people's, people don't necessarily remember everything, but they remember the energetic, the vibration, the frequency, and they take that with them. And so that is a little different bandwidth than let's say uh, working with two, 300 people for three days or two and a half days in a weekend intensive seminar, which is then different bandwidth and energetic than working with some with a group let's say 20 people in bali for 12 days 20 hour days you know that i teach 18 hour days 16 hour days and so each one requires a different thing and, and so but i think i think the core questions that people have we have as human beings tend to be like who am i what is my purpose you know questions about love this is a big one, question around love. Am I lovable? Will I find love? Will I love? How can I love more? Um, self-sabotage, how can I move through my own patterns of self-sabotage and layers of conditioning, you know? Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, these are all things that I kind of help people unravel. And I, I really say I don't really, I don't really teach people, even though I do, I don't really teach people. If anything, I, I create more of a space and spaces and an experiential experience that allows people to see their conditioning in different areas and kind of unravel that conditioning, which is less about, let's say, talking as I'm doing right now and more about taking people through some kind of process. Mm-hmm. Cool. Yeah. It sounds like a lot of self-work and self, I mean, yeah. sorry, self-worth goes into what people are coming through with and from your own observation of like the people that you look up to and yourself personally what do you find makes a really good leader 
Um, or a powerful leader. Yeah, I, I think one first thing is to truly lead other people, you have to be able to lead yourself. And I think there's a lot of people that can talk a good game about do this, do that, do this, do that. But leadership isn't just what you say. And leadership isn't just what you preach. Leadership is a beingness. Leadership is a state of your own being of how you live your life and an embodiment of that inside of yourself, inside of your heart, inside of your body. And that to me is integrity. And, and so I think if you're living your life in such a way with that level of integrity, when no one's watching, when no one's around, not because you're on camera, not because you're giving a speech, but you live that way. And you, you're able to lead yourself in a way where you have integrity with yourself, that you trust yourself, that you do what you say with yourself, you honor yourself in such a way, you show up for yourself. That builds an internal integrity, that builds an inner alignment, that builds an inner conviction, because now you know you're not full of shit. You know you're really like, whether anyone's there or not, you know you're real. And, and I think that internal alignment gives you the power, or should I say the soul force, to be able to speak in a way where your words carry the transmission and the vibration of your soul and the integrity of your being that is not fake but is real and comes from a deeper place. And, and so I think people, I don't want to say followers, but teams, those around you, people feel that. You know, they feel that. And that's what moves people, not just words. That's what moves people. And, and so leadership is a state of being, how you are with yourself, your ability to lead yourself and lead your life in such a way that your example speaks more than anything you say. And I think people can learn by watching how you live. To me, that, that's leadership. I think leadership also is, is the ability to see who someone really is. I think one of the greatest gifts is when you are seen, not for your personality, not for your addictions, not for your conditioning, but when someone looks into you and they see who you are and they see parts of you and potential in you that you don't even see, I think a leader is able to see your soul and bring that out. To me, that is the gift of a real, let's say, enlightened leader. An enlightened leader is someone who's in touch with their own true self, and they're able to speak to that in you and bring more of that out. And so even when you're not in touch with that, you're in touch with your own fears, they're like, I see who you are. Oh, yeah, we need to address this and that and handle that and you know deal with that. But just know, I see who you are. And they're able to draw that out. To me, that is... That is a gift of leadership of someone who really sees your essence and challenges you and stretches you to, to, to bring that out. I think the last thing about a leader is a leader is, a true enlightenment leader is committed to the evolution of your soul. Mm. They're committed to your soul. And sometimes what that requires, tough conversation. You know, sometimes that requires, might require you as a leader doing something that people aren't going to like, that your team, that your loved one, that someone working with you won't, won't like, that their ego or their personality won't like in the moment. 
But when you are true, like to me, real love is a commitment to someone's evolution, not just their ego wants and desires. And I think a real leader is not concerned about do you like me or do you not like me? Please give me validation. But more about serving your growth, your soul, serving the highest good in the situation in terms of with integrity. And even though those around you their personalities might be a little pissed off. When you follow what's true and you serve that, people feel that. And they may not like it in the moment. They might throw tantrums in the moment. They might be upset and project in the moment. But what I have found through being in that position with my clients and serving and you know, the people go crazy. Eventually, when everything settles down, they respect you. Mm-hmm. They, they, they have a level of respect for your willingness to lead them beyond their own limitations and patterns. So I think that those are some things around leadership. Oh, I love that. Integrity and really being able to see who somebody truly is behind, you know, all these walls of identity and self-limiting beliefs. So powerful. And I find too, from watching people and, and working through behavior change with people is like, if you are, you know, given this opportunity to change, even if it's a beneficial change, when people feel like they're losing their identity, even it's, even if it's for positive change, they go into like fight or flight because they're Scary. like, even if I change for the positive, my family or my friends might not resonate with me anymore. And I might lose everything that I am, even if it would be for my involvement. So yeah, yeah. I've found that that's also like a, a switch to make. Do you find that comes through as well? It's, it's, ter- it's terrifying for, because the ego's job is to reinforce our identity, to reinforce our sense of who we think ourselves to be. And so even if we're changing for the better, resistance kicks in because that thermostat, that mechanism, that egoic identification is holding on for their life because it's a death of the old. It's a surrender and a death of the old. And so, yeah, it's scary. And I think that is a natural part of evolution. And so as as a leader, as a transformational facilitator, as a healer, as a coach, for those of you out there, you have to be able to face that 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 um, resistance, that 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 I don't want to say reactivity, but that reactivity that comes out and fights. Because when you are expanding people beyond their identity, for them it feels like a death, and so the self survival mechanism will kick in. That's just a natural part of the process and sometimes attack happens, sometimes projection happens. But I think as a facilitator or a leader, the more you're able to recognize that that's a part of the process of growth. That's a part of the process of evolution and to, to hold that and not take it personally and to expand and just hold a, a new, a neutral and loving space. To me, that's the greatest gift you can give them. Like I've had many experiences, like for instance, when I was doing my 12 day events in Bali or even, my India journeys one-on-one when I take away everything from people, take them to India for 12 days and, you know, drop them in the middle of nowhere and work with them, facilitate 20 hours. It's intense. And probably in about day two, maybe three, but I'd be surprised if it's not happened in day four. My clients who, they loved me, want to kill me. (laughs) (laughs) They literally want to kill me. And it's not really me. You know, it's just the survival mechanism right. kicking in. And so to me, I always take that as a sign that I'm doing something right, mm-hmm. that, we're, that we're, we're actually get, getting closer to 
the transformation and closer to those aspects of them that we really need to heal and transform and, and work with. And every time I've held neutrality, which, which is what I've learned to do, at the end of the journey, when let's say the transformation has happened, my clients look me in the eyes and they're like, thank you. Like, like there's a respect there and they say, thank you. Thank you for not giving up on me. Mm. Thank you for not buying into, like, like, thank you. And so I think that's like, it's the job of the student to, to, to freak out. It's the job of the student to attack and go, it's, it's the job. And it's the job of us as leaders, facilitators, coaches to, to hold that space. That's part of the, the, the that's part of the role. That's part of the, the requirement. Like it, it's not that threatening to listen to motivational videos and, and inspirational videos, but it can be very threatening for the ego to like go deep and face your own identity shit. And that's, that's the real work. And so for anyone doing that, it's not easy, but I really acknowledge your courage and the courage it takes to be willing to face yourself and die to the old. Like that takes courage and it's, it's, that's where the, that's where the freedom is. Mm-hmm. I'm sure for people just showing up to one of your events is just like, they're, it's like they're giving themselves permission to change just by showing up. And that's kind of like half the work to just get yourself there. And then it's like, it's this amazing, unique dance that we have to go through. At least I find to just make sure that they know that they're held in a space of non-judgment while also being um, asked to change for the yeah. better. Like there's yeah. a harmony there that's, that can be met. Mm-hmm. The space is, in, I think the space is so important because also there is a innate intelligence inside of us that really knows how to heal. And that doesn't mean we can't have techniques and processes, but the space a leader holds, the space a facilitator holds is as important as any technique. And I think the techniques, the techniques, carry this is where maybe leadership comes in techniques carry the vibration of the consciousness to of the leader and facilitator and so what i found is you can't really it's hard to take people beyond where you've been yourself and that's why as leaders as leaders healers facilitators doing this kind of work we have a whole nother level of responsibility to evolve, to grow, to surrender, to release, to transform ourselves, not to be perfect, but just so that we can truly serve those we're called to serve. Right. And like build the path and show the way in an authentic way. It's like that saying, like, don't take advice from someone who hasn't been where you want to go yet. So it's like making those up levels for yourself as well. Yeah. Yeah. I'd love to hear about your writing process as well and, and how you came to be able to bring together these beautiful books and bodies of work. Like what was your writing process like? A writing process. Well, how do you even put together a book? You oh, know? Oh my God. So, so, so I kind of joke and I say, I hate writing. <laughs> I hate the process of writing. Uh, it's kind of a joke cause I can write when I want to write. Um, but for me, the process of writing is a little slow because I'm more of a speaker, a communicator, and going into that zone is more of a transmission of frequency versus 
the linear thought process because on paper things kind of have to make sense in a certain linear logical way that walks people through your theory and concepts and ideas so that things can land with speaking it's a little different there's more energetics involved and so um like the first book i wrote i was speaking to someone about this the other day the first book i wrote you are the one uh I took a compilation of my blogs and massaged that into kind of a book and then sold that only to have the publisher saying, well, we kind of want something else. And what I realized that they wanted was for me to frame my teachings around the India journeys that I do, which was called the liberation experience, where I take a person to India, take away your passport, take away your money, you have a backpack, a pair of clothes, and nothing is stuck with me for 14 days. So they, they felt that was interesting. And so then I had to go and rewrite something completely different. But for me, in the second book, The Magic of Surrender, um, which just came out last year, this was not the book I thought I was going to write. This was not the book I, I intended to write. This was the book that was more seeking to be written. And so what I've learned to do is actually embrace my nature in terms of the process of writing. And so rather than forcing myself, why do I need to suffer? And rather than forcing myself to sit there and write like this and put pages on, you know, things on the page, I chose to speak it out, have it transcribed, then re-edit it, re-edit it. Then I bring in an editor to kind of like wordsmith, craft the logic in the sequence of things. And then we massage and chisel away. And then we start sculpting with an editor, I start sculpting, like, like a production, to be honest, like a musical production, like a piece of clay. Then I start sculpting the paragraphs and the sentences. But, but for instance, this, this book, The Magic of Surrender, I had an entire whiteboard full of ideas. The only idea that came, the only idea that felt real and in, in, in integrity was surrender. I was, trying, I was trying to think of, well, this book would sell and that would sell and that would do well and that would be amazing. And that, None of, I couldn't look myself in the eyes and say, I can get behind this book and, and speak about this, this topic with passion and sell this with passion. Because for me, it's not, it's not just about selling. It's about a message. It's about communicating. It's about really believing in the message, you know? And, and so the only thing that stood out was surrender. And so from there, I brainstormed all of, when I surrendered to the book being about surrender, I brainstormed all of the different kind of concepts and ideas and questions around surrender, threw that into the mix, and then brainstormed all of my ideas about just surrender and thoughts about surrender, musings about surrender, just threw that into the pot in an audio and had that in, in a kind of a big suit. Now I kind of had something to work with. And then chiseled that, then I work with an editor. So for me, I write in a way that is, it is kind of graceful for me. You know, that's not everyone's part because some people like sitting, sitting there at the computer. But for me, it needed to be more enjoyable and more fluid and more doable and more fun. So it's still all my words. I just write in a way that's natural. So I, just, I would just invite, I hear so many people that say, oh, I can't write a book, but maybe you can speak a book. Mm -hmm. you know? and, and, and I tell people, give yourself permission to completely suck. Give yourself permission yeah. to be totally terrible. Just, just get it out. There's so many times when I thought, oh, I wrote that, but that's terrible. Then a month later, I read it and I thought, that's not that bad. But had I been constantly judging myself, I would not have let myself 
get it out. And so, I mean, that's a bit about my writing process. I don't know if there's any other questions, but I, <laughs> I can, I'm happy to elaborate on anything. Thank you. You know what? I think you just like lifted kind of a weight off of my chest. And I think a lot of people listening, if anybody wants to write and work on a writing project to like, just allow it to be a little easier and more natural and not so rigid. And I love your suggestion of like, if you're great at speaking, take a walk, put it in your voice notes and just transcribe it later or something like that. Transcribe it. And I would say, don't be afraid to to get an amazing editor to help Mm -hmm. you because writing is a very specific skill, you know, and, and I can write and I can write pretty damn well. And, and, but <clears throat> there was, what I found is working with my editor, there's another level of production and, and production is the word. There's another level of production and artistry that elevates what you're saying in a way that can be most digestible to the audience. And so, I like people to read my books. And so you are the one in Magic and Serena. People say, ah, this is so easy to read. Yeah, it is. I wanted to make it readable for 12-year-old, to be honest. Mm-hmm. And yet some people get fooled, but it's so easy. It must be very, very like basic. Yeah, some simple ideas. But even in Magic of Serena, I'm weaving some kind of deep concepts in a very simple way. And I really wanted it to be so easy to read that people get to the concepts and wouldn't think the concepts were so difficult because of the way it was written in such a maybe more of a poetic and, and, and digestible way. And my writing process too in style is, is kind of weaving stories. You know, I'm a storyteller. And so weaving the stories so that the medicine can be infused in the stories so it doesn't feel like a is 18 steps to you know trans- to surrendering and transforming your life type of book and so i wanted to that's kind of my 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 i don't say formula but my my um ingredients yeah it's so true that writing really is an art form in a way i was just talking with my sister about this and i just got out like five books at a time about um Celtic shamanism. And I'm looking through each, I finally got the book that really resonated. And what was different about that book was like, he wrote like an artist. And I was calling my sister. She's like, isn't it truly an art form? She's like the book I'm reading, this author just described light coming into a village for three pages. And it was the most magnificent visualization to be in the book like that. Mm -hmm. So yeah, that's so true to, to just mention like, working with someone who's already really gifted at writing. It's, it's a whole nother art. It's a specific skill. Mm -hmm. And there's, and what I realized is what I wrote like the first time for my first book was great, but there's levels to, to, to professionalism in like, like you'll see so many books that like, like I look and and I think to myself, wow, this is really amateurishly written. Mm -hmm. But, but, but when you work with someone who's really amazing, they can take what you're saying and in your words feed it back to you back and forth and it just becomes like pro level like 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 shredded tone a whole nother level same sentence but just massaging something so totally thank you for that beautiful advice i love it so coot if people want to work with you or just you know know more about you where can we find you how can we connect with you any projects you're excited about yeah one thing i'm excited about is the magic of surrender uh, paperback book is coming out May the 3rd. So depending on people listen, May the 3rd, 2022. And so depending on people listen to this, uh, yeah, go to Amazon, get the book. It's a, 
it's 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 a it's a special book if I say so myself. Written from for me from my heart, and I think it's an important book for these times. Uh, for those that get the book on May the seventh, I am doing something very 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 special. I'm doing a one time only virtual online transformational uh, seminar. It's called Reinvent Live, where I'm going to help you teach you the seven stages of reinventing yourself. Uh, letting go of who you were, letting go of the past, connecting to your power and uh, helping you access your gifts and sharing that with the world. And so that's going to be for about three hours, May the 7th. When you go to Amazon, you purchase the book, you get access to the seminar for free. The website for that is www.myname.com forward slash reinvent seminar. And then you just enter your receipt into that website, gives you access to a whole bunch of free gifts and the seminar. My website, Coop Blackson, for those that want to maybe go on a deep dive with me twice a year, I do an event in Bali uh, called Boundless Bliss Bali. The next one is July 25th and then December the 4th, www.boundlessblissbali.com. Instagram, Facebook, say hi. Amazing. Oh my gosh. I want to take your, your in-depth workshop there. I'm going to get your book. Yes. yes. Yay. Thank you so much for being here, Koo. It's been such a pleasure pleasure to learn from you and talk with you. So thank you. All right, my friends, thank you so much for being here with us today. I hope you're feeling inspired and lifted and called to action in some area of your life. And of course, everything we chatted about is linked in the description below. A couple more things on Maya. And if you go to HelenDenham.com, you'll find links to work with me if you're feeling called. I have a one-on-one mentorship program, a course called Cultivating Confidence, an eight-module self-mastery course. And there are lots of blog posts up for you. There's a link to sign up for my self-care Sunday newsletter, which goes out every week. I love doing that with you guys. And I also teach meditation on Sundays with Unplugged Meditation and The Den. So looking forward to connecting with you. Again, I'm on Instagram at Helen Denham underscore and at The Lifted Podcast. Talk to you soon. Episodes drop on Wednesdays. I love you so much. Sending blessings. Bye for now.